we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 3. So why don't you open up the Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 3, and I want to read to you um, that chapter there. Before I do so, can you take a moment to pray? Father, we thank you that in your patience, Lord, though your voice has been reverberating through the earth, Lord, you have nevertheless made it possible, Lord, for us in our dullness and our slowness of hearing to come to hear you for ourselves. And so here we are, Lord. We want to respond to all that you're saying and doing in our lives and pray, Father, that you will speak to us this evening. I pray you'll provoke and awaken godly desires and hungers. I pray, Lord, that you will bring us nearer to yourself and to the joy of serving you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me read to you 1 Samuel chapter 3. And uh, just to mention here, we've been looking at this character of Samuel who, um, at the beginning of this book, is born supernaturally to a mother who could not conceive and is, uh, predict- is uh, very much an answer to prayer. She immediately dedicates him to serving God in the temple. So offers him to live in the temple under the oversight, the guardianship of an old priest called Eli. And so he's been growing up um, as a boy in that context, just going about the work of the temple. And how we've arrived at the moment in which Samuel himself, even still a boy, has a personal experience of God that changes his life forever. And that's what we're reading here. It says, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And the Lord called Samuel. And he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I'll fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay 
until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now, we've been taking some time to work through a series on the Nazarites. And the Nazarites, as I've explained to you, were a strange and unusual breed of individuals who were wholly dedicated to God and consecrated to him through certain commitments that they would make. And so we've been unpacking the story. There are three stories of Nazarites in Scripture. We began with the story of Samuel. We're now at Samson. We're now in the story of Samuel. And we'll end uh, with the story of John the Baptist, the three accounts that we have. And my main purposes for wanting to unpack this are to partly to kind of bring a provocation to us all. And it's a provocation that would stir us to self-examination. The Bible, I think, by its ability to pierce our souls, um, provokes us to examine our own lives and our own spiritual vitality. And that's a good thing. It's not something that you want to remain in indefinitely, but it's, it's necessary for growth. That we look at our own hearts and we examine where we're at and understand the directions and the motivations of our souls. And then also alongside that self-examination, I've wanted to awaken new desires. I suspect that um, for some of you, godly desire, the longing for God is an unfamiliar thing in your life. And the Lord is wanting to change that. He wants to awaken within you a hunger, a pursuit, a passion, a zeal that will completely rejuvenate your spiritual life and set you in a new direction. I think this is obviously true for those of you who are not Christian at all, that God would want to make himself known to you and help you to see why he made you. But it's also true, isn't it, for those of us who know Jesus, who, who are part of his family, who belong to God, that it's, it's possible to cruise in the Christian life without really being wholly, passionately devoted to him. And I want to stir you in these ways. Now, one thing that you notice in these stories that we've been looking at is that these individuals seem to be awakened and called to the service of God against the backdrop of spiritual decline among God's people. And this is vital. It seems that whenever there's a kind of a pallor or sickness that's descended upon the people of God, God begins a reawakening and a rejuvenation that happens often in the lives of individuals who are standout, who are, who are remarkable in their distinctiveness and in their love for the Lord and in their willingness to serve him. And this is what we begin to see in the life of Samuel. Now today, the particular story that we're looking at is a, a pivotal moment that has to do with his calling, his call and commissioning 
to become a prophet of God, someone who will hear God's voice or receive the visions that God gives and then relay them to God's people. And this chapter, therefore, is massively pivotal in his life. If you consider what's come up to this point, we've known about his supernatural conception in his mother's barren womb. We've read about how she then offered him to God in dedication, wholeheartedly that he would belong to God in serving him. And how he, as a boy, has grown up in the temple. He's gone about his, his business of service, ministering to God. But all of these things lead up to this point. They lead up to the point at which he first encounters God in a powerful and personal way. And then everything that flows out of his life springs from here, really. What God does with him. How he becomes so influential in the life of the nation of Israel. Now, it's through through the lens of understanding his calling that I want us to think about this passage and its relevance to us today. The theme of calling comes into focus. The story, I'll grant you, has a uniqueness historically. Samuel is a Nazarite. He hears the audible voice of God. He hears God as though a man were speaking to him, and hence why he responds to Eli the way he does. I've heard one or two individuals claim that they've heard the audible voice of God. I certainly have not. And I don't think I've ever met anyone who has, though I've known people give account of it. This is a very unusual story, I'll give you that. And of course, the things that he does with his life are unusual. He's the last judge of Israel in a sequence of judges. He's a kingmaker who anoints the first two kings of Israel. So clearly, the calling that God places on his life has a particular grandeur to it, a greatness to it, and a uniqueness that's non-repeatable in history. There'll never be another Samuel. He stands alone in in certain respects. But even if that's true, I also believe that the scriptures teach us that God is intricately interested in the details of our lives. I think, for example, I think one of the most precious passages that, that teaches us this is Psalm 139. It's a very famous and dearly loved psalm. But in this psalm, the psalmist talks about how his life has been constructed from conception by the living God and therefore also constructed for particular purposes that God has designed him for. And this psalm is meant to be prayed and sung by all Christians, all believers, that they can say out of themselves, I have been made by God and I've been made for his purposes. Hear how he puts it. He says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame, or my body, was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now, if you allowed these verses to really settle on your mind and heart, you realize that what they're saying is something quite profound and radical which is that it's not just the Samuels of this earth who have been supernaturally, miraculously knitted together by God, but that every one of you has been constructed by God right down to the details, the molecules and so on of your body. And that the God who made you and constructed you and designed you has also created you for purposes that, as he says here, Um, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, 
when as yet there was none of them. So before your days even unfolded, God had made you and designed you for what he was calling you to. And it's because of this general understanding that I have of the, the sovereignty of God and his interest in the very details of our lives that I think we can say, even if Samuel's life is very unique, and it certainly is, even if that's the case, we can read a passage like this and understand that the call of God that hung over Samuel's life, that it has resonances with the way God speaks and calls each one of us to himself, first of all, and then also into his purposes. Now think about this just from the point of view of the way God calls. If you are somebody who has given your life to Jesus, you're a Christian. God called you. You are not a Christian because you chose him first and foremost, but rather because he called and chose you. That is the call of God. Then as you grow in the Christian life, God begins to speak to you at distinct and important moments in your life where you feel like you have to break with the old and, and begin to press into God in new obedience and devotion to him. This is the call of God. You hear his voice from moment to moment or time to time in seasons of your life. He speaks to you through scripture. He's working in your life in a unique way. He's calling you to himself in deeper devotion and obedience. And for some of you, I think that is clarified into a very distinct sense of the calling of God in terms of your vocation and mission that God has put on your life. You could say with real confidence, I feel that God has spoken to me about what I should do with my life. I believe that God speaks in this way. I'm not sure that all believers experience and feel that to an equal degree. That certainly isn't true. But I think that for those who seek God, as John was reminding us in the worship, that as we draw near to God, he draws near to us. He wants intimacy and he wants to speak to us. That you can seek him in terms of his will for your life and hear his voice, his calling. And the more you make yourself available to him, say, God, I want to live for you. I want to lay my gifts and all my talents and my energies and my time on the altar in order to serve you, I believe that God honors that desire. In fact, he's the one who awakened it to begin with. It's part of his calling. So you can see how God's calling lays over all of our lives at different moments and in different ways. And it's through that lens that I want us to think about this passage and really ask the question, what are the features of the call of God? What is going on here? And how does it, how does it speak to us in terms of our own experience of the call of God. Let me show you a number of things that come out here. The first is to recognize that God's call is desperately needed. If you were here with us last week, you'll remember that Samuel growing up as a boy in the temple was being overseen by Eli, an old priest. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are the acting priests, are a disaster. They don't really know God themselves. They're going through the motions of worship, but their hearts are far from God. And of course, it's always the case that whenever Christian leaders are themselves spiritually barren individuals, it's only a matter of time before that barrenness begins to affect all God's people. And that is the context into which Samuel is growing up, a real sickness and something horrible that's happening even, even among the most important spiritual figures in the land. 
And if you recall, God speaks to Eli through a prophet and tells him about his judgment on Eli and upon his household because of the things that Eli is tolerating. And that whole passage comes to a kind of end where God says to Eli that as he's going to remove Eli and Eli's line and diminish his, 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 uh, his line from influence in the, in the life of the nation, God says, on the other hand, I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. If God is dissatisfied with individuals and particularly with Christian leaders, it is within his power to remove them and to raise up a new generation. And I want you to see how this, this need, the need for Samuel really, is becoming acute. And this is how the passage immediately begins to speak to us. It tells us right at the first verse, as the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, it says, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. What does it mean? It means partly that God's people were not, that somehow God's law had been lost, that they weren't interested in or devoted to the word of God. The Torah that Moses had been handed down from Moses was becoming a less important document. Just as scripture these days is becoming, that we're becoming biblically illiterate, certainly nationally and even among Christians. And more than that, of course, it's also speaking about the absence of the prophetic influence of gifted individuals who are supernaturally anointed to hear from God and communicate God's will and mind to the people in that immediate sense of being prophets. These two things were, were a growing absence. And of course, it said in Deuteronomy, one of the books of the law, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. For God's people to survive, they have to be listening to God constantly. The second that we deafen our ears to God, our lives begin to fall off the path upon which he's called us. And the, the community is a supernatural um, community under the lordship of God, it begins to fray and dismantle and disintegrate. That's the story of the book of Judges, if you've read it. So when it says here that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, you have to understand that this is a very drastic situation. It's an emergency. There is nothing more dangerous for God's people than that they have failed to stop listening to God's voice. And in fact, more than that, it's also a sign of God's judgment The Bible tells us this. There are some verses, for example, in the book of Amos, which is a prophetic book. And listen to how it's described there. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. It says they'll wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. When God's people have set themselves on a a pathway of resistance to God, of disobedience and of walking away from him, eventually God says, okay, you don't want me, then I will withdraw from you. I'll stop speaking. And so the word of God is lost and the prophetic element is lost. And that's when the situation becomes drastic and dire. That's the backdrop to Samuel's life. 
And there's something else here as well that, that just fills this out for us. You see how in the second verse it describes Eli. It says, at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. A few things you have to see about Eli. We already know from the previous chapter how he's obese through fattening himself upon the offerings of God. He's, he's grown obese physically, and it's a symbol of his spiritual lethargy. He's a blind old man, and he's sleeping in his own place away from the presence of God. You put this picture together, and what you're seeing is that the last vestiges of spiritual health in the nation that's, that's, in cap, that's captured in the symbol of the leader, that that is fading away. The generation is passing away. God must do something new at this point because his sons were a disaster and Eli himself is not much use now as well. God must do something new. And this is where we begin to hear what God is doing because it tells us immediately that the lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. The lamp hadn't gone out which I think is a symbolic expression. Of course, it was true literally, but it's telling us that not all hope had had been extinguished, that God hadn't withdrawn entirely from his people. The lamp of God has not gone out. And Samuel's asleep there in the temple near to the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the, the manifestation of God's presence was experienced. So as the old is passing away, the word of God is rare, and, the, and Eli, this old spiritual leader of the nation, is growing fat and blind and cold spiritually. As that is beginning to fade away, God is not finished yet, though, because he's doing something new, and he's doing it through a boy. I believe that no matter how dark things grow, and they do you see this, that there's a seasonal aspect or a cyclical aspect in some regards to the way God works in peoples and in nations. No matter how dark things get, how deliberately and with how much determination we turn our backs on God, as long as there are individuals who are seeking him, God can and does begin to do new things. And it's vital, as I was telling you last week, that for there to be hope, a new generation has to have a a personal and fresh encounter with God. It's not enough just to live on the good of what previous generations knew or, or experienced of God, because that secondhand faith will not do. It grows crusty, it grows dry, it grows ineffectual and weak and impotent. And so when God is beginning a new work, it starts with ones and twos, with individuals encountering him in a personal and fresh way, as Samuel does here, as he hears God's call. The call of God is desperately needed. And if that was true then, I am totally certain that it's true now. God's eyes are looking around for those individuals like Samuel camped out, as it were, in the presence of God, ready and waiting. The call of God is desperately needed. Let me add another thing here. Along with this, the call of God is also unexpected. 
And I just draw attention to this because I think it's helpful to understand just from the point of view of Samuel's experience and what he goes through here as God begins to speak to him because it, 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 it is something that many people have experienced themselves in a sense. He actually didn't know what was happening when God began speaking to him. Now, for us as readers over this chapter, you know, you know what's going on completely. You've seen as it were, Samuel, from conception, growing up as a boy, and you know that he's a unique individual, and you know it's God speaking to him. But Samuel doesn't understand when he starts to hear the voice of God saying, Samuel, Samuel. And the difference is like this. Have you ever been to one of these big country estates in the, where, that's run by the National Trust or English Heritage, and you can look out on the gardens of these old estates, and centuries ago it was the fashion to build these big labyrinths or mazes in the gardens, with, often with tall hedges, And if you stand in an upstairs looking through the window down onto one of these mazes, you might see individuals walking around through the hedges. You can see whether they're near the beginning or the end or where they're heading, if they're heading in the right or wrong direction. If you're in the midst of the hedges, you don't see very much at all. And it's like that for us as readers looking down on this passage. We know that God's at work in his life. And it all looks so easy and so simple and so obvious with hindsight, doesn't it? When you have God's eye view on the situation. But Of course, that's not how Samuel experiences it at all. He hears a voice. He doesn't know who's speaking to him. And repeatedly, three times, he goes and wakes up Eli until Eli tells him what to do about it. And you feel it's something almost comical, especially if if you've uh, ever, you know, if you've had children as we have, when you hear them waking you up in the middle of the night, the last thing you want to do is, is wake up time after time, and it happens, you just get more and more frustrated. You can feel Eli's frustration. But of course, it all stems from Samuel's confusion. He doesn't know what's happening to him as God begins to speak to him. He's not aware. And the question is, why? Why doesn't Samuel know what's going on here? And the reasons given there in the seventh verse, it tells us that Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Then how does this get rectified? It gets rectified by Eli, this old and experienced priest who did enjoy something of a relationship with God, however imperfectly. It's rectified by Eli instructing him. He realizes God's speaking to this boy. And so he teaches and mentors and disciples him in that moment and teaches him to respond to God, the one who is speaking. And tells him, listen, next time God speaks to you, say, speak, Lord. For your servant hears. Now, the reason why I'm drawing attention to this element of the story is because I think it just brings comfort to us all. There's a sense in which God is speaking all the time. The Bible tells us that the voice of God goes out into all the earth through his creation. He's speaking of his grandeur, his might, his power, his glory, his majesty. The voice of God is speaking all the time for those who will hear, but we do not necessarily know how. The word of God is there as a permanent record of God's revelation. To hear God's voice is some, in some sense is as simple as opening the Bible, and yet very often we open it and we're not sure how to listen. And along with nature and scripture, we're also told that the spirit of God is active in the world and he's active to call individuals to himself to work in our lives. His voice And the fathering presence in us to speak to us the will and the heart of God. The Holy Spirit speaks. But you can be like the boy in the 
like Samuel here or like the person in the hedges, you can't see what's going on as God begins to speak to you. You might feel unusual desires emerging and awakening. If you're not Christian, you know something's going on, but you don't know where it's coming from. God is speaking to you. He's awakening a spiritual hunger. You might feel conviction about particular patterns of life as a believer, and you, you know that you need to have done with this stuff, but you're not quite sure how, what, what's going on. And it's like the Bible's teaching you God, God is speaking to you. His Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Learn to attune yourself to the voice of God. Or you feel longings, and you start to see a vision for what your life could accomplish. You see the way in which your talents and your particular construction fits a certain need in the world. And you just need to learn, listen, friend, God is speaking to you. He's awakening you in certain ways. And so what you're seeing in Samuel's life is mirrored in all of our lives. This is the pattern of discipleship. The pattern of discipleship is simple as learning to discern the voice of God. To go from that place of confusion like Samuel does, where hearing God's voice, he's not responding to God, to a place of clarity where suddenly he says, speak, your servant hears. And that is how you mature in the Christian life. Learning to attune yourself and your spirit to the voice of God because he wants to speak to you. The call of God is desperately needed, but it's also unexpected. It's unfamiliar. May God grant us the ability to listen to him. Here's a third thing that you see here. As God begins to speak to Samuel and begin to call him into what he wants Samuel to do with his life, that calling then is tested. It is thoroughly and almost brutally tested. And here's how it unfolds. How does God test Samuel? He gives Samuel, this little boy, remember, a profoundly difficult prophetic message. I won't read it all, but you can see the beginning of it here in verse 11. It says, Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And what does Samuel do as he hears this message of God's judgment on Eli, his mentor and father figure? What does he do? You glance down at the 15th verse, you'll see it says, He lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Now, this is an incredibly important moment in his life. God has spoken to him for the first time. He's beginning to be introduced to the living God and beginning to embark on his calling as a prophet that will become the most important thing about him in the decades of his life to come. But all of it hinges, in a sense, on this moment and whether he will actually embrace obedience or not. And he doesn't want to. Even as the call of God comes to him, he has a choice at this point, doesn't he, about whether he'll act on it, whether he'll deliver the prophetic message that was his calling, to speak the words of God. And why is he hesitating? Well, because he's afraid. He's fearful. If he's to fully act out on this, he needs to kill fear. He has to kill the fear of man. He has to be devoted to a greater love of God and the love of God's truth if he's to act on this and to become the prophet that he's meant to be. And if he doesn't do that, then the call of God will lie fallow, will die. 
in him. But then he does speak. Why? Well, here's how, how it takes place. Eli knows that God's spoken to him. Remember, he was woken up three times in the night. So he knows something's happened. And he says, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. And what he's doing there is he's leaving a curse, a spiritual curse, hanging over Samuel's life if Samuel's not obedient to God. May God punish you, in other words, if you fail to act on the calling that he's put on your life, if you do not speak the prophecy that you've just received. And so Samuel does speak. He tells Eli everything he's heard. Why? Because the fear of God overwhelms the fear of man that might have inhibited him. He felt fear of man for a moment. He didn't want to tell Eli what he'd received. But the fear of God, invoked because of the curse that Eli spoke over him, becomes the more dominant thing in his mind and in his heart that swallows up the fear of man and then liberates him into his calling as a prophet. Now I see in this such an important thing for us to reckon with which is the fact that at every point as God calls you, that calling will be tested, and it will be tested against the test of fear. Always. Think about what happens when you first give your life to Jesus. And some of you maybe are hesitating to make that step. Or you made it recently, and you're experiencing the struggle of it. The moment that you profess allegiance to Christ, this is, in a sense the greatest treachery possible against the world. You've become a traitor to everything that this world stands for, and therefore you've made yourself an enemy to this world. And the moment then for that you've changed allegiance, and you've put yourself under the lordship of Christ, he's become the king and sovereign of your life, and positioned yourself as an enemy to the world, that will begin to awaken fears in you. Fear of being different. Fear of being rejected. Fear of being misunderstood. Fear of of missing out. All kinds of fears that begin to awaken in your heart that test whether the call of God in your life is strong enough and whether it's settled deeply enough and that whether you will endure. Christ taught us about this. Go and read his parable of the sower and you'll see it there. The call of God gets tested and it gets tested by fear. The same thing happens as you're growing in the Christian life and God begins to speak to you and call you to himself in deeper obedience it might be in the, in the area of your finances, where God's speaking to you about the need to reckon that these things belong to him and not to you, and then to reconstruct how you use your money according, along those lines. Or it might be in the area of your time or your talents, or it might be in your relationships. Wherever it is, God starts to speak to you in, you, in ways, and you hear his voice, and you feel his call. Now, why is it that we might hesitate to obey him at those points? And we do. It's always because of fear. The fear of being strange. The fear of missing out on the experiences or pleasures of this world that you might otherwise choose. Fear begins to go at war with the call of God in your life, and that's the test. Will the fear of God and the reality of God, will that loom bigger and larger over your soul so that the call of God wins out in the end, or will it not? 
Or think about what happens when God begins to speak to you about the specific mission and calling that he's put on your life. And some of you will hear very clearly from God what it is that he's calling you to do. I would say of myself, with great confidence, I feel that God told me what to do with my life. But then that gets tested. It gets tested, as it was in Samuel's case, by fears. What if I've heard wrong? What if I fail? How will I ever accomplish what God has given me to do? And so, like Jonah, having heard the call of God and the mission of God that he's spoken over you, you might turn and run in the opposite direction. Samuel had his opportunity here to do that very thing. The call of God gets tested. How do we overcome those fears? Well, it's clear, isn't it? We overcome fear by the greater fear of who God is. The longing to please him. The desire to offer everything to him. Now, let me bring this then to a conclusion. Look at the final feature here. The call of God was desperately needed. It was unexpected. It was tested. And then finally, you see how the call of God on Samuel's life, as it will be in yours if you listen to him and obey him, the call of God was vindicated. Vindicated. Vindicated means to be proved right and true in the end. And Samuel's call is vindicated here in this chapter, and what it then tells us takes place in his life. We, we jump from his, this boyhood experience. We, we rapidly move through into adulthood, and it tells us that he's vindicated in a few ways. He has success, he has fame, and he has influence, all ordained by God. You see it there, verse 19, he has success in this sense that Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. That's the test, if you're a prophet, of whether you're a real prophet or not, is whether the things you say come true, whether they are genuinely from God. And what we're learning about Samuel is that the authenticity of his call as a boy is now proved because the things that he says are clearly and demonstrably from God. He had success as a prophet in that sense. He also, along with it, had a God-ordained fame. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I don't believe that fame in and of itself is a necessary objective for the Christian life or a marker necessarily of faithfulness to God. But in certain instances, it's a demonstration of vindication as it is here. You see what happens. It says from verse 20, All Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So clearly was God's call upon this boy's life, now a man. So evidently was God with him in it that his fame begins to spread through the nation. There's something beautiful in that, isn't there? That when a person wholly, fully, and with abandon dedicates themselves to God and and cares nothing for the outcome, God is very able of putting you in the positions and places he wants to put you. He has fame. And the last thing you see that accompanies this is that he has influence. It says in verse 21, The Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And then it says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. The intention of God from his boyhood was to take this boy, dedicated to God as a Nazarite, put him in a position where everyone in the nation would know about him, and then make sure that they listened to him. He had influence. 
Of course, you can accomplish nothing in this life except by the influence that God gives to you and through you. Now, why is this so important? Well, because I take it as a given that all of you would much rather do something with your life than nothing. And that you're devoting a certain amount of energy to accomplishing something with your life. That you long to make a mark in some way. That if you could choose, you'd rather that that mark was lasting in some sense. And that if you could have success, you'd embrace it. But of course, if that's true of us all, we have to acknowledge and recognize, don't we, that we do not always go about these things in ways that honor and please God. We manipulate and self-promote. We compete with others. We're motivated by jealousies and envies. And the Bible's very clear that even though it's in the heart of every person to seek and attain glory in some senses, the glory that we seek for ourselves is a temporary glory, but the glory that's given by God is permanent. And you have a choice about which one you'll embrace. It's there in Psalm 90. It's a beautiful psalm. It's written by Moses. And he compares these two possible ways of living. He talks about, I think, the glory of man in terms of our self-generated, man-centered accomplishments. And this is how he he speaks about our lives through that lens. He says he he feels the humility and the humbling of, of, of the temporary short nature of our lives. He says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Moses had come to recognize that life lived without the favor and the power of God is temporary. Its glory is just a a mere blink of an eye. Of course, remember his account of his life was that he grasped at that around age 40, when he tried to bring about his calling, delivering his people from Egypt and killed the Egyptian. What did it amount to? Well, he ended up running into the wilderness for 40 years, afraid of Pharaoh. That was his, his man-centered ability, his desire manifested there to try and bring about his own destiny, and it didn't work. Not until he'd been humbled. Not until he'd been a shepherd for 40 years, and then God began to speak to him. At that point, he was a broken man. Felt he'd lost the ability to speak and communicate. He had some kind of stutter or some kind of speech impediment and thought, why are you going to use me, God? I can't even speak clearly. What a different man he'd become at age 80 from what he was at age 40, having grown up in the palace. And broken, humbled, dismantled, that's when God chooses chooses to use him. And then God raises him up. And the end of that psalm, having meditated on the shortness of life and the temporary nature of our glory, it then turns around and looks at it from another perspective of a God-centered life and ends in this way. 
He says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. If a life lived for yourself and temporary glory is a fading existence, a life lived in obedience to God is one that he alone can establish, which means to make permanent, be well built. And that is, of course, the very thing that you're seeing in the life of Samuel. Having heard God, having stepped out beyond his fear and in faith and in trusting God, Having cast himself upon God in that way, in obedience, he becomes a prophet whose impact outlasts his life. And this is the very pattern you see in the life of Jesus himself, isn't it? Called by God. The preeminent and supreme calling in all history. The calling to step down from his place of glory, to take on human flesh on a mission. A mission to go after us, to rescue his bride to redeem his people from their sins. He heard the call of God and he acted and he obeyed. And then that call was tested. Tested by the seeming ignominy of this existence on earth with no earthly glory, growing up in poverty. Tested by temptations that he faced on a daily basis like you and I face. Tested by rejection by the mockery and scorn of others who could not for a second believe that he was the son of God or anything approaching divine. Tested by the rejection that he experienced toward the end of his life and ministry on earth when he was abandoned and then put on trial and then murdered by the authorities, executed. Tested by all these things and ultimately by death. Had Christ been seeking his own glory in a man-centered way, he could have accomplished something and he would have abandoned all. But instead, he cast himself into the faithfulness of his father, entrusted his life to the father and went to the cross for you and me. And what happened? He was vindicated. The Christ whose life blood bled out on the cross and who was buried in the tomb, was then raised by the power of God, vindicated by his resurrection, and then ascended to the Father's right hand, vindicated by his place of authority, and given a name, we're told, that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That is vindication. And the pattern of Christ's life is the pattern that he invites you to enter into when you hear his call. It may look like self-renunciation. It may look like rejection. It may look like sacrifice. It may look like emptying. It may look like becoming the scum of this earth. But in obedience to Jesus and in faithfulness and faith in him, those are the lives that God vindicates. And so you're called to choose. You're called to choose. Whether to listen to the call of God and embrace it. Or whether in fear you'll turn away. May God, the same God who spoke to Samuel, 
and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, may he speak to you, to call you to himself, to call you into deeper obedience to him, and also to commission you and to give you a sense and a confidence about why he's put you on earth. And may you, by the power of the Spirit, embrace this with a yes, by faith. Cast yourself on him without reservation. Amen? Amen.